Amen. Thank you, Floyd and Millie. May we drink from the river of life this morning. Well, good morning. I mentioned in prayer this morning that I almost feel guilty today here in Virginia is a, a picture perfect day. And yet our fellow Americans in Florida uh, are being pelted by the hurricane. So we want to keep them in our prayers as well as all of the other natural calamities that are going around in the world and in particularly in our nation. Well, um, <clears throat> One more thing I wanted to mention before we dive into Matthew chapter 5 is that you may have noticed that there are sign-up sheets in the back for community groups. So our community groups are starting again. Uh, They're seasonal. We take a break for the summer. We take a break around the holidays and then start back up. So that is an important part of who we are as New Covenant Fellowship as we strive to uh, congregate and create Christian community through the Spirit of God. So I just want to encourage you to be a part, if possible, be a part of our community groups. And um, if you're thinking about now might be a change in this new season, might be a time to change community groups, I would suggest that uh, you have the freedom to do that, but talk to your group leader about it rather than just not showing up one one time. Just talk to them about it. Maybe talk to the group leader of where you want to go and let them uh, give you some counsel in that. But you do have the freedom to move. But I just want to strongly encourage you to be a part, get plugged in, if at all possible, to one of our community groups. That's where we do life together in a setting that we can't do here on a Sunday or we can't do in our classrooms Sunday mornings. With that said, we are in Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> beginning in verse 38 this morning. And this is um, statement number five of six statements. Jesus has a crowd that have followed him, and he's on the side of a mountain, and he's literally preaching a sermon to these people. These people are following him because they are fascinated by what he can do. This man can perform miracles. And they're following him because they are enthralled with the words that are coming out of his mouth. They've never heard anybody speak like this. And so as he has this great gathering before him, he takes this opportunity to lay before them the kingdom of God, to open their eyes to the kingdom of God and the teachings that the king has in this kingdom. And so He has been saying things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And at this point in this sermon, he is addressing the law of God. And the Jews were a people of the book. They were a people of the law. The law was very important. And the problem is that they had God's word, literally. But then the way they interpreted it and understood it and painted a picture of it was not how God intended it to be interpreted or understood. And so Jesus is saying, here's what God said. Here's the picture of life that you're painting. But here's the actual original intent, intent behind the words that God spoke, because in their misapplication, the many of the Jewish leaders, not all of them, some of them had a true relationship with God, but many of them in their misunderstanding, created this system whereby you just stay lost, whereby you you think you are 
the most favored of God, but you are actually under God's divine wrath. So all false teaching, no matter how glamorous it may seem through our acts or our devotion, keeps people lost. It keeps people from seeing the truth. And so Jesus is graciously bringing before people an opportunity for them to see the kingdom and to understand God's word correctly and rightly so that they can enter into this kingdom and be saved. Now, the way that they interpreted the Jewish, many of the Jewish leaders, this law is not even close, not even close to what God had in mind. And so Jesus is setting the record straight in this sermon And in doing so, he's revealing to them, as well as all humanity, when you take God's word as it was originally intended, you will see that you are not righteous. You will see that you cannot attain righteousness in and of yourself, and you will see that you are in need of a savior. The idea is that people will understand I'm drowning in sin and cry out for salvation, because if we don't know we're drowning And we're not going to cry out for salvation. So these words really help us see our heart and they help us see God's heart. So let's read um, these challenging, very, very challenging words. I hope you're ready to be challenged in verses 38 through 42 in Matthew chapter five. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Have you ever read anything close to this? Have you ever encountered any words like this or any teaching like this from any other book outside of Holy Scripture? Have you ever heard anybody say this? Have you ever watched this kind of response or lifestyle portrayed in the movies? Has that message come through or in a book that you read? Pleasure book, perhaps? I mean, who who would say words like this? Allow yourself to get slapped not just once, but twice. Is this the advice we as parents would give to our children as they go and maybe start a new school year or 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 reach adulthood and go out into the world? Listen, expect it. I want you to get slapped in the face twice. I don't want you to resist evil Uh, when the, the beggars that you're going to encounter in life. Just give and give generously. If somebody forces you to. Serve them in this way, then then go the extra mile in that way. I mean, who gives this kind of advice? Is this practical? Is it to be taken literally? And if it is to be taken literally, how would that change our lives and the way we interact with our sphere? What kind of person would give or require such things of people that he loves? What's behind this? And if these words are to be taken literally, then you know there's something really big and powerful. There's this, there's this big, important reason behind it. 
Well, that's what we're going to look at. And actually, for the next couple of weeks, it'll take two sermons really to unpack this passage. And we have to be real careful because this particular passage has been butchered, you might say. It's ironic that Jesus gives it to us to bring needed clarity. And even within this needed clarity, we still manage to butcher it. It's this passage that has been used to teach pacifism. It's been used to teach lawlessness. It's been used to uh, teach conscientious objection of war. Um, It's been used uh, as the proof text against capital punishment. I mean, this scripture has been used for a lot of things, even within the church. And so we want to be careful with this Um, and not... Abuse it, if you will, because uh, we could walk away thinking that God doesn't care about justice and being a believer just means getting pushed around, never objecting to any kind of abuse. Basically, being a Christian, according to this teaching, it sounds like means being a doormat to the evils of the world. But what we're going to learn, and we're going to talk about just the law aspect of it this morning, the first part, and we'll get more into uh, the turning the other cheek next week. So it's really, you've got to listen to both sermons um, to understand it properly. But just so I don't leave you hanging, um, understand this this is the big picture and this is where we're headed. Rather than teaching lawlessness and pacifism and so forth, What this passage does is it really teaches the absolute beauty of justice. It brings out the beauty of law and God's intention for it. But it also brings out the beauty of Christian freedoms to waive your rights, you might say, for the for the glory of God, uh, for the witness of the gospel And for the purpose of being like Christ. So that's the big picture. That's where we're headed in the next few weeks. Now, as we look at this and we study this, if you think that this passage is going to take some kind of exegetical turn, turn, you're going to learn some new words, uh, a different angle. And we're not under these words or we don't have to submit to them as written then you're in for a big disappointment because there's no surprise. There's no exegetical turn that's going to place take place. The words are what Jesus says they are. We are to obey them. We are to submit to them. However, saying that we need to come at this with the proper attitude. There's some there's some things we just have to equip ourselves with and know. And one of the things we have to know as we think about these words and how we would apply them to our lives is that God loves us. And we have to know that God loves the lost. He loves those in the kingdom. He loves those outside of the kingdom. And we have to also learn the beauty of self-denial. Freely denying ourselves things that other people might claim as rightly theirs so that we can be like Christ and beautify 
the gospel by living it out and bringing glory to God. We have to come at this passage with that mindset. So with that said, let us unravel these words. Speaking primarily about the law or the law and retaliation. It's been about a year ago now. I don't remember all the details, but as I thought about this passage, boy, did this real life experience come to my mind. I'm in the town of Farmville, not quite downtown, but close to it. And um, it's two lanes going um, north and south to two north to south. And for whatever reason, there's this traffic jam. I don't know if there's a special event or construction I can't remember, but you're just kind of creeping along from light to light. And in the opposite, I'm all the way over to the right. So there's a car parallel to me and then there's the two lanes going this way. But in the opposite lane is this lady in a minivan and she needs to get into this driveway or this place of business. Uh, And so she's really being aggressive. Um, She's inching her way in. And she manages to inch her way in to the point where the guy in front of her, whether he wanted to or not, has to let her go by or else he's going to he's going to crash into her. So she's managed to get in front of him. And here I am in my truck in the next lane. And I'm I'm really I've already gone too far. I've inched too far because, you know, in traffic jams, whenever there's a little bit of a little bit of room to make some progress, you want to fill that that opening. Right. Especially if you're impatient. Um, like me. So I'm just wanting to get on with this thing. Well, there she is. And, I, you know, I'm a little bit past the point where I can let her in. In order to let her in, I would actually have to probably back up about a foot. You know, it's close. It's a close call. But from where I could tell, I'd probably have to back up about a foot. And I don't do that. Um, I just kind of continue to slowly go by her. And it was really awkward because, you know, I didn't zoom by her. I'm stuck. So I'm just kind of slowly going by her and I look over and man, she is mad. Her arms are flailing and we're, you know, pretty close because she's almost T-boning me here. Uh, Her her face is beet red. Her veins are popping out of her neck and expletives are filling the airwaves. And so I'm just kind of going by like like this. And uh, she was so so upset and it was just really awkward i mean she looked like she just walked off the stage of a jerry springer show she was looking for a chair to break over my head i mean this was seriously bad stuff and as i pass i'm thinking you know well could i have backed up i guess i technically it would have been possible for me to back up and let her in but is that isn't that overdoing a little bit to be that upset over one having to wait for one more car. Of course, the next person obviously let her in after seeing this great display. But but what what did I witness? What was that? That's retaliation. It's retaliation. I didn't break any traffic laws or anything like that, but I really offended her in in some way. I, I hurt her feelings. I offended her and she wanted to get me back. She wanted to let me have it for not letting her in. She wanted me to pay for it. And so the best way she could do it, I guess, was with the expletives and the the uh, the drama there. And I thought to myself, is all that really necessary? 
Or is that overkill? An overreaction to being hurt or being offended. And then as I was studying these words, I thought, how many times have I overreacted and gotten really upset and vengeful over people that have offended me or inconvenienced me for one reason or another? Here's the thing. Deep down in our hearts, there's a part of us that wants to retaliate and be vengeful. There's a part of us that wants to get even. Now, we're created in the image of God. And God is a holy, perfect, just God. There is no defilement in Him at all. Never find it. And because we're created in His image, we also have this sense of justice. We have a pretty good sense of right and wrong. Globally, you'll see that. We agree on it as humanity. But it's not perfect, it's off. Our sense of justice is off. And what happens is this, because of the sin nature, because of the fall, mixed in with our sense of justice, because it's off kilter, comes this retaliatory spirit of vengeance. And somewhere in the mix, things happen to our lives. We love justice, but we also love vengeance. And so somewhere in the mix, our desire for wanting to uphold justice and fight for justice gets lost to our stronger desire to just want to inflict pain on somebody for inflicting pain on us. So that is what we are up against in this passage. And then what happens is most of the time our desire to get even isn't really a desire to get even. It's our desire to inflict more pain on that person. You, you, you push me, I'm taking you down and out. You know, it's not just I'm going to push you back. Where do you get in life of you just pushing each other back? Somebody's going to ex- escalate it. And it's going to get more and more evil, more and more painful, more and more lawless. And when unchecked, something like that com- turns into complete chaos and perhaps even anarchy and civility. So we, we take a stand for justice because We know we've been offended. We know somebody just did something that's really wrong. And then in turn, completely become lawless in trying to uphold the law. That's our sin nature at work. Are we not seeing this in our nation with all the upheaval, with all the racism, with all the the, the political um, divisiveness? Uh, we have people being uh, people offending each other based on what they think is right, based on their sense of justice. And rather than going about it um, in a lawful way, it's being applied in an unlawful way. And so we see lawlessness and we see people get seriously hurt. And then it just elevates the anger, elevates the level of vengeance and vindictiveness in our nation. Very, very volatile place. What did um, Jacob's sons do? And way back in Genesis, you know, they were all chip off the old block rascals. 
for the most part, except for Joseph, maybe Benjamin. But their sister is taken by a Canaanite man and he has his way with her, poor Dinah. And so the older sons, uh, they don't do an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They don't say, well, we're going to take one of your sisters or one of your people and have our way with her. What they do is deceive the men of Canaan in this town. And um, they wind up devising a plan whereby they slaughter the men of that town. There was no eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth there. So what is this that Jesus is saying and how do we properly Apply it. I mean, if you really think about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, doesn't that doesn't that envision just pictures of of brutality and bloodiness? I mean, I I read those words and I picture people's eyes being plucked out and, you know, bloody mouth and people knocking each other's teeth out. Isn't this a brutal, bloody thing? And is it even found in Scripture? Who came up with this? Actually, yes, it is found in Scripture. Jesus is quoting the very word of God, Uh, the Bible and God. Of course, the Bible reflects God's character. God is all about justice, all about upholding justice. It is very, very important to God. Um, And this law actually does not promote brutality, does not promote lawlessness. It promotes justice. The law is an important thing. The Bible makes it very clear in Romans 13 that the law that we have, God even ordains it and ordains and appoints people to serve in capacities as rulers and leaders and judges. It's very good. It's very important. Why do we even need it? The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So is it possible to use the law unlawfully? Yeah, absolutely it is. You can get in there and you can manipulate and so forth. But when it's used properly, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murder. So it gives lots of examples of law breakers, sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Why do we need law? Why do all of us need law? Because we're all sinners. And in one way or another, we are all law breakers. We all struggle with this. We don't always act on our sinful desires. And that's where you have kind of like more of a moral law, which is more of an interpersonal basis. And then you have the civil law. The civil law is when if you act on your evil desires and actually carry them out, you don't just say, man, I just want to I just want to Superman punch this person for what they've done. But you actually do it. You break their nose. They take you to court. Now it's a civil case. You have broken the law. There's things that we can't get uh, by with because we have laws. There are things that are wrong to do, but it's not a violation of law. So 
it's when you act out on your evil, that's where you find yourself in the courts. It's a civil situation. And that's why we have it is to keep civility. So why do we have this law? By the way, this law is the oldest law known known to man. It's considered the oldest law in the world. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You can research it, find it in the Code of Hammurabi, but it is also in the Old Testament. And it basically means uh, the, the punishment should fit the crime. So the punishment should fit the crime in kind and degree. Now, why is that a good thing? How does that uphold justice? Well, you can imagine with our vindictive spirit what our idea of justice would come out to look like when people have hurt us or inflicted pain in us. It would not always be a good thing. It is for the purpose of protecting those that obey the law and for the purpose of inciting fear or a detriment to deter those that would desire to break the law. The idea is that you, you can't just get away with doing evil. There's going to be consequences. And the consequences are going to, to the best of the court's ability, uh, fit the crime, the degree of the crime and the kind of crime that you have <clears throat> committed. Uh, not so long ago in parts of the Middle East, uh, particularly Iran, you get caught shoplifting. The punishment that fits the, the crime and kind and degree, off with your hand. Shoplifting. You get cut, your hand cut off. Now I think they have downgraded uh, it to they have a machine that will just cut your fingers off. Um, so that it's not quite as brutal as it was. But this is the, the, the idea of, now to me that's pretty severe punishment. Um, quite frankly, I don't know if I would have any hands uh, um, right now if I got caught. If our laws were the same. Um, But that is an application. Here's what we need to understand about this law. Is that every time it's mentioned three times in the Old Testament, this is quoted. And every time it's within the context of the civil case. It's in the context of the courtroom, magistrates, judges. This is not a person. This is not how we relate interpersonally. You know, you you bump into somebody at church they bump back into you. We, we don't. This is not how you're to do life. This is a courtroom and it's very important for us to understand this. It's not intended for personal relationships. We want to let the civil law do its work when there's been an, an offense. But we also have our heart to look at as well, which will be primarily addressed beginning at the end of the sermon, but next week. So let me just give you one example in the Old Testament. It's a kind of topic we could really get caught up in. I just want to look at one example. Exodus 21, beginning in verse 22. When men strive together, and by the way, yeah, it's kind of archaic way of putting it. We don't quite have the same situations in our day and age, but you'll get the point. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, But there's no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges. This is a courtroom case now determine. 
But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his truth. So the, the whole purpose of this law is to protect the, the weak from those that are strong, those that are more powerful. It's to protect the poor from the rich. There's protective powers in here. And it just says, look, it doesn't matter what you feel like doing or what your sense of justice is. If you violate the law, there's going to be recourse. You can't, no matter how rich you are, no matter how powerful you are, you can't just do what you want to do and take the law into your own hands. And so you might pay with an eye. You might pay with a burn. Uh, you might wind up having to pay money for something. It's not always an exact reciprocation. Sometimes it's great loss of, of things that are valuable. But the idea is it's going to cost you to the degree that you cost the other person in some kind of way. It will cost you. And so that's the purpose of the law. And we need the law because we all have this tendency within us to not keep the law because of our sin nature. And it says, don't overdo it. You can't overdo it. We're going to deal with this as civilly as we can. But neither do you want to underdo it. See, you can't underdo it either, because if we don't uphold the laws we have that are good and right, these are assuming they're good and right laws. If we don't uphold them and we just let things slide, people don't respect the law. So you can't overdo it and you can't underdo it. There just there needs to be a swiftness here. There needs to be um, wisdom and discernment here. Otherwise, we can't maintain it. The, the courtroom atmosphere, this this principle, this law, again, is not intended for interpersonal relationships nor are courtroom decisions the time for us to make decisions based on our personal opinions or our personal compassion that we might have if, if it was one-on-one interpersonal there was a uh, there was an example in california a few years back where um a a young man had been Convicted of rape. And I don't know all the details, but he had a bad past and this the the defender, his lawyer, you know, pointed out this terrible past that this guy had had. And the judge eventually feels sorry for him based on that. And he lets him go. And not a month went by before that man that was let go, who was showed personal pity in the courtroom, raped and murdered a nine year old girl. So now what's the judge? Who is the judge feeling pity and compassion for? There's a difference between how we uphold the laws of morality and civility. And there's different times to apply these laws and these rules. The courts are for maintaining it. It's not a time for our personal sympathy and compassion. Otherwise, we are undermining Justice. There needs to be consequences to evil. So this is a just 
law. It's a very good law. It's a merciful law. It's a protective law. It it curtails blood feuds that can get way, way out of hand. Evil that can get out of hand. Vengeance that can get out out of hand. The person that's guilty is the one that's punished. It also helps us understand how to apply it as far as some, you know, if, if one of the family members offends me, do I go in and wipe out the whole family like we see in, in gangs and drug cartels in the old times with threatened kingships? One violation, you wipe out the whole family. This, this is the person that's committed the crime that faces the consequence. So it's very good. It's very, very just. And justice is important. It's not an excuse for a personal vendetta. And now just kind of as a segue into next week's. So um, there's there's a little shift that's going to take place. So now we ask ourselves, OK, if justice is important. How do we make this transition from the importance of upholding the law to the importance of not resisting evil uh, to allowing ourselves, say, to get slapped in the cheek twice. Is that just? Where's the break? Where's the balance? How do we understand this? What should our attitude then be towards those that break the law? Uh, should it be lock them up, throw away the key, give them the strictest penalty possible? Um, should we hate them for breaking law? Should we despise these lawbreakers? Uh, look down on them as a lower form of humanity because they stooped so low as to do these wicked things. So how does justice personally affect our hearts? What do we do with our strong feelings and opinions and our inner hurts? Well, the same God who wrote an eye for an eye, a tooth for the truth, same book, same author. Also wrote these words in Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see how God is speaking to our hearts, shepherding our hearts and our feelings and our thinking about justice, about being wrong about being offended on a more personal level. Things happen. People break laws. But what response should we have? It's like he's he's beginning to shepherd us to to warn us. Don't let that heart grow bitter. Don't let that heart grow cold. Don't let that heart grow vindictive or you will find yourself doing that and even worse acting out in evil. So, yeah, even the Old Testament says, don't bear a grudge. You think, oh, no, that's New Testament church teaching. It's Old Testament church. Don't bear a grudge. Don't be vindictive. Don't be an avenger. Let the law do its work. Let the law of God do its work in your heart as well. So there's a there's a sense there where. When when the judge bangs the gavel in the courtroom, when a civil offense has taken place, perhaps ushers a sentence to the person that has offended you. The own judgments in our heart 
should be that of forgiveness. Where we don't hold on to it for the rest of our lives and take that person down. So you have two different perspectives of law going on in two different realms of law. The one that should be enforced in the courts and then the one that's enforced between a man and his God or say a man and his fellow man. Love your enemies. Teaching of the kingdom. John MacArthur says, I stood at the door of my own home under the threat of a man coming in with a knife to maim one of my children. What would I do if he came in and killed one of my children? I thought about that long and hard and very thoroughly back in those days that that this actually happened. What would I do? Well, what Jesus is saying to me to do would be this. Catch the man. Hold the man. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If he needed Christ, give him the gospel. Most of all, forgive him and love him and let the law do exactly what God gave the law to do. They work together. One belongs in the courts. The other belongs in my heart. It's an attitude of forgiveness. That's hard, isn't it? A few more scriptures in the Old Testament. Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-one: If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Do you see the gospel in the Old Testament? Do you see the original intent of the law? In the Old Testament, Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I hope it's beginning to come into focus and how we can uphold justice. It's a good and right thing has to be balanced. But yet when it's applied to our own hearts, there's the law of Christ that also has to be obeyed. In how we view our fellow man, even those that break the law, even those that break the law against us. Because we can become in bondage, though we may not be behind bars. We can become in bondage and enslaved to our own bitterness, to our own plots of vengeance and vindictiveness. And Jesus is all about setting people free. And this is how he offers to set us free. The Jews of his day. Why is he even bringing this up? Well, the Jews of his day, the leaders, had turned this into a personal law to be obeyed. And it became their biblical permission to get people back for the offenses that they had done on a personal level. So... Rather than it being to prevent evil and brutality, they said it's my proof text to be brutal to other people based on how they are brutal to me. It's a mandate for vengeance. I can't let you get away with this because God's word says it. They removed it from the courts. They brought it into a personal vengeance and used it to justify their hearts full of hate. It wasn't about... Well, I'm doing this because I want to uphold beautiful justice. It's about I'm doing this because I want to wring your neck. That's what Jesus was up against. 
That's not the way of God's heart. So Jesus says, I say to you. Now, all three of these things are exactly contrary to how the flesh would react, right? You are expecting someone to react in this way. It's very natural to expect that. But notice how all three are things that are completely counterintuitive to our nature. Do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Anyone would sue you and take your tunic. In other words, I'm taking you for everything you're worth. Give him that one little thing that you have left as well. And if anyone forces you to go to one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, the next time we'll look at these in light of the gospel perspective. How are we to understand that? What is the power behind it? But I want to close with this. How could we possibly obey these commands even with joy in our hearts, understanding the big picture and the reason behind them. How can we keep the balance? God, are you really, really saying sometimes we let people slide for personal offenses, not for civil offenses, personal offenses. We let people slide. How does that fit? How does that balance? We got to love them. We, We have to forgive them. How can we uphold the law and yet forgive and keep that kind of balance? This is where I think the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world really takes a sharp turn. There's a lot of things we can do as Christians that that pagans do, unbelievers do. I mean, we share the same highways, right? We plant our corn the same way, right? There's, there's things we do that are same. But when it comes to this kind of teaching... This is where the world reacts starkly in one way and we react starkly in another. How can we possibly do that? That's where the biblical teaching of self-denial comes in. The world does not teach self-denial. If it does, it's usually in the form of a false religion where you take away all God's joys. There's a place for self-denial. And we have to ask ourselves as we begin to wrestle with this. When I react to injustices, am I really wanting to uphold God's beauty, God's holiness, God's law and sense of justice? Or am I wanting to uphold my own honor? Is, it, is, is my own honor the one, my own sense of dignity, is that what's being fought for? Or am I fighting for God's honor and God's dignity? In other words, is it self? Did somehow self get back up on the throne? And you are, you're, you're trying to cut at myself and I want to self-preserve so I'm going to get you back? Or is God still on the throne? So it's a fine line here and that's what we're wrestling with. It's very hard. God asks us to do hard things. John MacArthur again says the only person who is non-defensive, non-protective, non-vengeful, never bears a grudge, has no spite in his heart, is a person who has died to self. Does scripture tell us to die to self? Now we're starting to see an application, a very specific application of what it might look like for us 
to die to self. He says, what is there to defend if I die to self? What is to defend? But if I'm going to fight for my rights, then I prove the point that self is still on the throne. Self is ruling. Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself daily, take up his cross and follow me. Here's the cross. There's no discipleship without the cross. There's no salvation without the cross. Can't fulfill the Great Commission without the cross. Can't share the gospel without the cross. There has to be a death to self. There has to be a cross. Do you have your cross with you this morning? That's what makes the difference between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the world is all about build up yourself, strengthen yourself, preserve yourself. Don't let anybody cut into the self, defile the self, insult the self. You fight for your rights. You fight for yourself. And here comes Jesus saying, you know, the self that the world loves so much. Die. Put it to death. What might that look like? It might look like what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. It's not get all you can while you can. It's give yourself away. That's what Jesus came and did. He gives himself. We'll look at this next week. He gives himself. He loves his neighbor. We die to self so that we can be free of the chains of the self that will take us in the wrong direction. That will preserve the wrong things. That will treasure the wrong things. That will enslave us. That will keep us from experiencing the joy of a life in Christ that God has. But that joy comes through the cross. Set our minds to the cross. This is what discipleship looks like. It's what being a kingdom outpost looks like. It's a stark difference. The people that are filled with this teaching and live this teaching out. They look like that. Are we there yet? May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.